Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday to you. It is the start of another week, and I'm in favor of it. You ready for it? It's going to be a good one. This is going to be a good week. Uh, we're going to make it a good week. God is blessing us with another good day and another uh, chance to get back in His Word together. Uh, my name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. It's 10 o'clock. We call this Tim with Tim. Most of you know what I'm saying. Uh, we do this every day, Monday through Friday, for about 10 minutes. We go verse by verse through the Word of God. We are smack dab in the middle of Isaiah, and we're doing Isaiah chapters 27 and 28 today. These are tough chapters. Uh, I like them, and uh, there's a lot to like and a lot to talk about. Chapter 28, when I put two chapters together, I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't thinking about chapter 28 being as dense as it is, so let, let's jump right into it. Chapter 27 starts with kind of a one-verse wonder. Uh, this one verse just kind of dangles in there. It doesn't follow a whole lot on what comes before, what comes after, but it concerns, uh, once more, in that day. When Isaiah uses that phrase, in that day, he's talking about that coming day of judgment, that coming day of the Lord. And so in that day, the Lord will take his terrible swift sword and uh, punish Leviathan. What? Who? Leviathan? What in the world? Um, we don't know. Leviathan appears a couple of times in the Old Testament. Uh, the book of Job, for example, it either refers to an actual beast in the ocean that we don't know, you know, a whale, I don't know, um, maybe a mythical beast like a dragon, you know, for us or a unicorn. Uh, we don't know. We really, really don't. But what's important here is not so much to figure out what zoological reference is being made here. The more important thing is, is what Leviathan symbolizes, what he represents in the Old Testament, what he represents to Isaiah here. And I think, again, we're talking about God's complete and total conquest of evil. And Leviathan, you know, this mythical beast, the swiftly moving serpent, the coiling, writhing serpent, the dragon of the sea. Um, here's what I think. I think Leviathan represents here specifically, but I think elsewhere in the Old Testament, Levi the Leviathan always represents um, evil loose in the world, you know. Uh, there is this sense in which even if you factor out all of human sin and all of human evil, there's still something radically wrong with creation. It is somehow still, um, there's evil on the loose, even without us. And, and Genesis plays that out, right? I mean, Adam and Eve, even before they sin, you've got this serpent. You know, this sense that evil is already loose in the world and, and there's always this draw, this pull, this sense in which there's something in creation that is already not right. And, and so th this one verse here in chapter 27, I think just points to that, that God is going to make right everything that's wrong in creation. He's going to see to it that every single thing in heaven and on earth and underneath the earth, that everything lines up with the purposes of the creator. And that includes Leviathan, you know, whatever evil there is loose in the world, it will once and for all be subject to God's terrible swift sword of righteousness and everything will be brought into perfect shalom, perfect peace with the Creator and His purposes. Does that, does that make sense? Uh, what follows there is another uh, song of the vineyard. Remember back, was it chapter 5? You know, I will sing a song, a song about my vineyard. In that particular song, which is better known than the one in chapter 27, that other song of the vineyard was really a song about judgment. But this one, not so much. 
Notice that it says, in that day, sing about the fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, will watch over it, watering it carefully. Day and night, I will watch so that no one can harm it. Here, you know, God is much more a vigilant, uh, pr protective presence for his vineyard. And notice verse 4, his wrath is gone. There's no longer anger here. So what you find here is, is God who is present for and protective of his people, his vineyard. And so you still see that he is fiercely opposed, I mean, to briars and thorns. Anything that would grow up that would threaten the fruitfulness and the joy of his people, of his garden, he is going to be fiercely, uh, fiercely opposed to. Do you see that? So here you, you just get this sense. It, it's, it's really a beautiful picture of how God's wrath and God's love work together, you know, because they're really, in some ways, two sides of the same coin. Uh, God's love is what is poured out toward the world, but God's wrath is what God brings toward anything that threatens his love, that opposes his purposes to love and to bless. Do you see that? And so even here, he's, he's got no wrath, no anger towards his vineyard, but that doesn't mean that he's not going to you know, find the briars and thorns that are growing and root them out and burn them up. Do you see that? Uh, but let them make shalom with me. Yes, let them make shalom with me. Again, that that uh, in, in the previous song of the vineyard, I think the word you know there you know was about righteousness and fruitfulness. But here, the theme is shalom. You know, just peace. You know, I I, I want peace with 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 my people. With peace with my vineyard. Let them make peace with me. Shalom is the key word there. The time is coming when Jacob's descendants will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill the whole earth with fruit. So again, it's another song of the vineyard, similar to what we read before in chapter 5. But, but this one is much more a picture of peace, shalom, fruitfulness, but also God's fierce protective love for what belongs to him. God always, always takes care of what belongs to him. And I love that. Uh, this next part, chapter 27, verses 7 to 11 Honestly, I don't think anybody really knows exactly what we're talking about here. There is this city that's destroyed, but it doesn't really name the city. And so it's hard to know whether we're really talking about, you know, Samaria again or, or somehow, you know, Israel. Uh, we don't know. Jerusalem, we, we, we just don't know. But, but here it is. The point here is the contrast between the way God deals with the enemies of God's people and the way he deals with his own people. Now, when, when God's people turn against God, they meet his wrath. But God's wrath toward his own never has the same uh, goal in mind of, of what uh, comes against you know, the, the, the enemies of Israel. Has he punished her? Has he punished them? No, but he has exiled Israel to call her to account. You know, he wants to purge her wickedness, to take away her sin. There's always this you know, important redemptive goal you know, with the Lord. He's not just punishing to erase, you know, but exiling Israel, exiling his people so that he can purge her sin and therefore redeem her. Israel is a foolish and stupid nation for its people have turned away from God. Therefore, the one who made them will show them no pity or mercy. But, but again, even that 
pitiless, merciless, you know, act of, of punishment is intended to redeem and to draw her back. Yet the time will come, verses 12 and 13, when the great trumpet will sound and uh, yeah, those will return to Jerusalem. So once more, that remnant will return and worship. So again, God's goal here is return, redemption. Do, do you see that? Verse, I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 28, let's jump right in. Starts out with the punishment against the northern kingdom, Samaria. Uh, I've kind of marked all up, you know, that opening section there because of the way those phrases in the New Living Translation, the glorious crown of the drunks of Israel, that just keeps being repeated. It sits at the head of a fertile valley, but its glorious beauty will fade like a flower. I just sort of tried to, you know, parse out the poetry there. Uh, what I'll call your attention to, because my time is limited, there are three very important phrases in chapter 28 that have theological afterlife. I mean, these are phrases that will come back in the New Testament, going to come back and echo. Because honestly, what starts in chapter 28, there are like four chapters here that all start with the word woe or what sorrow awaits. Uh, and just pay attention to that. But again, these the poetry is actually very lush and beautiful. And, uh, and there are some phrases here that are very, very important. Notice uh, in verse 15 and verse 18, we've made a covenant with death. It's, it's this delusion that somehow they're going to cheat death, that, that whatever you know, God is trying to bring, you know, they're going to cheat it. They're going to get around it. We've made a covenant with death, which means you know, God, come after us. You, know, you can't hurt us. You know, we have somehow, you know, we're going to dodge your coming judgment. And of course, the foolishness of that is illustrated. I like verse 20 where it says, the bed you have made is too short. Uh, the blankets are too narrow. It's this picture of like, have you ever, like, you know, your son got sick in the night, so you had to go sleep in like his Star Wars bed. <laughs> you ever like tried to lay down in a toddler bed and like your feet are sticking off the end and the blankets are too small and it's a comical picture, but it's a picture of the foolishness of how you think that you are adequate in yourself. Your inadequacy is revealed like a bed that's too short or a blanket that's that, that that's that's too small. Again, that covenant of death is an important phrase. Verse 16, don't miss it. Uh, look, I am placing a precious cornerstone. You know, oh my goodness, that has amazing afterlife for the New Testament when Jesus is that cornerstone. Again, we're talking about they've got this covenant to cheat death. They think that they have found security, you know, apart from God. And here in this particular context, that cornerstone represents that, that security, that permanence that is only really found in, in the temple in Jerusalem and ultimately in Christ himself, that precious cornerstone I love. Call your attention to verse uh, 21, that alien work of God, which is a strange thing, God's alien work. I think it refers to this work of punishment, destruction. In the past, God worked miracles for the purpose of salvation, but here God's going to work miracles in the life of his people for the purposes of destruction. He's going to destroy because of his wrath, because of his punishment of their sin, but don't ever miss it. There will be a remnant and God will move forward with the remnant and ultimately will redeem the life of his people. Oh my goodness, I don't even have time for the rest of this. It's just all so good, but read it and read it closely. Go back and read it now that, that, that we've talked about it. That final little parable there of the farmer at the end of chapter 28, uh, I think it's just a picture of God knows what he's doing. 
You know, like any smart farmer knows exactly what to do. He knows the difference between his crops, his wheat, his corn, his, his cumin, as it says here in chapter 28. He knows not to pulverize it, you know. He knows how to thresh it without crushing it, you know. And it's just a picture of, you know, if a farmer knows how to deal with what belongs to him, I promise you, God knows what he's doing with what belongs to him. Uh, so with that, understand you belong to him. And while the present circumstance of your life may be difficult, trust him. He knows exactly what he's doing. He will always take care of what belongs to him, and you belong to him. So trust him today. Trust his hand. He is always ultimately going to redeem your life and do you good. So trust him no matter what you have to go through today. I love you guys so much. I'll see you in the morning. Lord willing, 10 o'clock for 10 with 10. We'll just do chapter 29. I'll slow down a bit. Chapter 29, verses 1 to 24 for tomorrow. All right? So I'll see you in the morning, Lord willing. 10 o'clock for Tim with Tim. I love you guys so much. It's Monday. Y'all know it's my day off. If you do Myers later, I'll probably see you there. And, uh, and I love you so much. Stay in the Word, and I'll see you in the morning. All right? Have a great Monday.